God, this is your word, and I'm so excited that we get to come and study it. There's so many people in so many different places, God, that that don't have the opportunity to gather like this and to study your word. And God, I, I do believe that the time for us to be able to do this is drawing short. And so, God, I pray that as we, as we really study your word now, and as we seek your face, I pray that we would truly hide your word up in our hearts. That what we receive here tonight would never leave us, but that it would sit in our hearts. That we would chew on it all night. That we'd meditate on it all week. That we would allow it to saturate our thoughts. That we'd allow it to saturate our emotions, our feelings. That we'd allow it to truly change our lives. God, I pray that we would never come to this study idly, but that we would come always looking to, to get closer to you and to receive from your word. I lift this up in your precious son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, before we jump into 1 Samuel chapter 1, which is where we'll be today, uh, I figured it would be important to do a little recap of the intro, a much shorter recap of the intro to the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, For those of you who were here uh, last week for the Agape Feast, and for those of you who weren't there for the Agape Feast, well, this will be your first time hearing that brief introduction. Well, before I get anywhere else, I have to ask you guys the question, what is this book about, this book, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is the book of leadership. Leadership. 1 Samuel is the book of leadership. Leadership is so crucial, so important in our society. And anywhere there is community, anywhere there is organization, there must be leadership. We looked a lot at that last week. Whether it's on a sports team, whether it's in your job, whether it's in the church, whether it's in a school setting, no matter where you're at, Anywhere where there's community, anywhere where there is organization, leadership is essential. And so as a result, chances are every single one of you here in this room will have at some point in your life authority to exercise leadership, whether it's over your household, whether it's over uh, employees in your job site, whether it's over uh, a ministry in a church, no matter what setting it may be in, chances are every single one of you will have at some point in your life the opportunity to be in a place of leadership. And so as a result, since leadership is so prevalent not only in our culture but in our lives as Christians, it's very important for us to understand what God wants us to be as leaders, what a biblical leader looks like. And that's what the book of 1 Samuel is about. It's the book of leadership. Understanding what it means to be a good and a godly leader and understanding from bad examples what it means to be a poor or a wicked leader. We're going to be looking at three main characters in the book of 1 Samuel. The first one, as the name of the book suggests, is Samuel. I know you'd think that uh, Samuel, since the book is named Samuel, would be all about him, uh, but in, in fact, it's not. Uh, in the Jewish Bible, in the Jewish Bible, the books of First and Second Samuel are actually one book, and it's just the book of Samuel. And the only reason why it's called Samuel is because the book, as we're going to see in just a few minutes, starts out with the birth of this first character, Samuel. Samuel was an obedient man after God's word. 
We looked at that last week that Samuel was an obedient man after God's word, a man after God's word. He was a a great prophet and truly uh, uh, up until this point and after this point for quite a while, he will be one of the greatest prophets and more influential prophets that Israel has seen or will see. Samuel is a man after God's word whose heart was all about not only hearing God's word, not only communicating God's word, but being obedient to God's word. After taking a look closely at the life of Samuel over the next nine weeks or so, we'll take a look at the life of Saul. The life of Saul. Now Saul was a selfish man after God's blessing. He was a man after God's blessing. And his heart's desire uh, was to seek after whatever God could possibly give him, or more to the point, whatever he could get out of God. He was a very selfish man. A man who, by the way, is a, a poor picture of godly leadership, as we'll see in a few short weeks. After taking a look at the life of Samuel a man after God's word, and the life of Saul, a man after God's blessing, we will take a look at the life of David. Now, 1 Samuel and the better part of 2 Samuel cover the life of David. And I'm so excited to be taking a look at his life because other than our Savior, Jesus, no other single person has more scripture devoted to their life than David. I'll say that again. Other than Jesus, no single person has more scripture devoted to their life than David. And we will see that just as Samuel was a man after God's word, that Saul was a man after God's blessings, David was a faithful man after God's heart. A man after God's heart. And in the lives of these three characters, as well as quite a few smaller players in between, we will learn what it means to be godly leaders in every setting of life, including and especially church leadership. Well, with that, with that brief introduction, we will go ahead. Actually, before I do that, I wasn't planning on doing this, but I think it's important uh, since I just did that to remind us as we're studying, you know, the the, the book of Samuel. The book of Samuel is a, is a piece of a greater series of books in the Bible known as the history. It's important to kind of take a, a step back uh, once in a while and look at the Bible in, in, in its context and then in its context again as the Bible as a whole. And so I want to do that really briefly. So again, the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel uh, together are part of the histories. Now as we study the histories... Uh, the histories cover a period of about a thousand years, about a thousand years. And the purpose of us studying the histories is not so that uh, we just understand where everything kind of came from, although that is valuable. It's important for us to understand the line of Christ and God's, all, all the things that God did to bring about uh, our Savior. But it's not just that. But rather, we study history in order to learn their mistakes so as not to repeat them. The old saying is true that history does repeat itself. It absolutely does. And so as we study now these, this biblical history and take a look at these 
characters uh, in the history, some of them very exemplary characters of how we should live, and some of them are, are characters that you would not want to model your life after. We need to seek and understand the mistakes that they made so that we might not repeat the same history. History without being understood will most certainly repeat itself. And so our goal in studying 1 Samuel in light of the history in Scripture is so that we can learn the mistakes that were made and not repeat them. Not repeat them. A little bit of background now uh, before, we, before we look at, at, at chapter 1. Again, 1 Samuel leaves or picks up where the book of Judges really leaves off. You remember Ruth, which we just studied uh, over the last four weeks, sort of fell into the time period uh, of the Judges. It sort of overlapped with the period of the Judges. And now as Judges is sort of tailing off, 1 Samuel picks up. And we have now, in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, a character that, we're intru- that we are introduced to very shortly named Eli. Now, Eli was a priest uh, in Shiloh, and he was, so to speak, the leader, the human leader of the nation of Israel at this point. So let's pick up with that sort of backdrop of information now in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Rephaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. We'll pause right there. Now, any time that we, we come to these genealogies, you know, I always stress that when we read these, you know, sometimes they can seem unimportant to us um, because we don't understand them really, and we can breeze over them, and we'll miss some great nugget, right? Some really important thing. But the interesting thing about this here in 1 Samuel chapter 1 is in verse 1, it points out that there's a certain man of Reth, uh, Ramathiam, Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim. So this is, it's important. The writer of 1 Samuel, the narrator, is pointing out to us, is making special case to say that now there was this certain man. There was this certain man of Rethiam Zephim of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah. Okay, so this, this guy must be pretty special. This guy must be pretty special. It not only tells us where he's from, but it tells us what his lineage is. He was the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. Here's the interesting thing about all of this information. It's extremely unimportant. It's extremely unimportant. Now, I know that that seems very backwards. Tyler, you just said that this is important, and now you're saying that the information is unimportant. Well, understand, I'm, I'm being a little paradoxical, but this information is important because it is unimportant. Now listen, this obviously means nothing to us uh, here in 2011, but what I'm telling you is that even 3,000 years ago, this information, where this guy was from and what his lineage was, was unimportant. Why? Because he was a very unimportant person. He was a nobody, so to speak. His, his dad, his grandpa, his great-grandpa, even his great-grandpa were no one of any real significance in the children of Israel. 
In fact, even where he comes from, from Ramathim Zophim, nothing really happened there. It was really an insignificant place that he lived. He was an insignificant person in a line of very insignificant people. Oh, but Tyler, it says that he was an Ephrathite. That has to mean something, something significant, right? Well, sort of. It, it says that he was an Ephrathite. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but hey, don't shoot me, okay? Ephrathite means that he had family connections with Bethlehem. With Bethlehem. Ephra uh, is another sort of like nickname for Bethlehem. And so we have this guy who has these connections, these family connections with Bethlehem. Now, Tyler, that's really significant. Well, not yet. The person that, that first put Bethlehem on the map was David, and we haven't even been introduced to him yet. He hasn't even played a part in this story yet. In fact, more than likely, neither he nor his father Jesse have even yet to be born. David has not yet been born in Bethlehem. And then what made Bethlehem so significant? Well, of course, our our Savior Jesus was, was born there in Bethlehem. But up until this point, understand, Bethlehem had literally no significance in the scope of the children of Israel. So we have a very insignificant man coming from a very insignificant place with a very insignificant parentage, with a very insignificant family connections to a very insignificant city. This guy was the epitome of insignificant. He was the epitome of unimportant. And so my, what I, I am, am trying to say here is that the importance of this information is that it is unimportant. As we're taking a look at what it means to be a godly leader, oftentimes we look for leaders in the right places. We look for leaders in the right places. We have certain spots, certain uh, lineages, certain people groups that we believe that leaders should come from. But the reality is, is that God doesn't necessarily work that way. God doesn't necessarily use the right guy from the right town and the right family. He's not looking for the aristocratic people. He's not looking for the dukes or the earls, so to speak. He's not looking for the right people in our eyes. So often God's leaders from every human perspective are the wrong people. They're the last people that you would, that you would peg to be leaders. And this is just as true of Elkanah. This man A very insignificant person to be starting this book, but a very significant book nonetheless. We'll continue reading there in verse 2. This man, Elkanah, had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. We'll pause right there. 
So now we're introduced to what this insignificant man from this insignificant people group, from the insignificant town with his insignificant family connections to an insignificant city, we're told that he did something year after year after year. We're introduced to a ritual of his family, and that's that every year they would travel the 15 miles north to the town of Shiloh where they would worship the Lord where they would worship the Lord. They did this every single year, just as probably most of Israel did. Understand the tabernacle at this point was put at Shiloh. Now, if you remember back a few books to the book of Joshua, right? The book of Joshua, when the children of Israel went through and took captive the promised land, they inhabited it and divided it up uh, for themselves. Shiloh was the place that the tabernacle of the Lord was first encamped. And now quite a few years later, here it still stands at Shiloh. And so Elkanah and his family, his two wives, Hannah and Penina, and Penina's kids, every single year, they make their way up to Shiloh and worship the Lord. We're introduced to a very other significant fact, though, about this family. Elkanah had two wives. One was Hannah, and the other was Penina. Hannah had no children, but Penina did. This is something that that was fairly common in this culture. Hannah was barren. The Lord had closed her womb. And so what would happen was, in order to continue on the family line, Elkanah took a second wife, Penina, who was able to provide him with sons. Now, this is something that's not new for us here as a study. We've seen this happen a couple of times. You remember this happened with Abraham. Abraham was told, you'll have a son, right? Sarah, though, was barren. She, she had no kids. And uh, she laughed uh, when God said, you're going to have a son. Yeah, good one. I'm over 90 years old, okay? I'm not going to have any kids anytime soon. And so what they did is they devised this plan where Sarah would give uh, Uh, Abraham, her hand made to be his wife, and she would give him a son. And that's exactly what they did. Well, not only Abraham, but but his son Isaac did the same thing. You remember, Rebecca was barren, right? Rebecca was barren, but his his other wife, Leah, had children. The Lord had closed Rebecca's womb. So what happened? They prayed, and and Rebecca was able to conceive and, and give birth. Listen, this isn't something new to us. This happened time and time and time again in this culture. So here Elkanah has Hannah, his wife, whom he loves dearly, but is unable to provide him children. And so Penina, uh, Elkanah takes as his wife, probably does not love him uh, in the same way that he loves Hannah. Hannah is his soulmate, his true love, his, his dearly loved wife. And Penina is the mother of his children. Penina is the mother of his children. Well, this creates some resentment there between Hannah and Penina. So every year they go up and they worship. Every year they go up to Shiloh and they worship God. They sacrifice there. Verse 6, And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So here we have two things happening. We have there in the end of verse 5 that 
To Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now, before we go any further, there's something that bears a little explanation. If you have the English Standard Translation, chances are you, your Bible reads just like mine does, that to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. But some other translations that you have may say that, the, that he gave her one portion, though he loved her uh, because the Lord had closed her womb. According to uh, a, a Hebrew scholar and commentator, John Woodhouse, the more accurate translation of the Hebrew is that he gave her one portion. He gave her one portion. Now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, which is why I said it bears a little explanation. Understand, the writer of, of 1 Samuel is pointing this out to us, that he gave her one portion though he loved her because the Lord had closed her womb. Listen, what's trying to be said here is that this man Elkanah was a fair husband. Even though he loved his wife Hannah dearly, he showed no favoritism to her over Penina. Even though he loved Hannah more, Hannah was his soulmate, his true love, his dearly loved wife, and Penina, the mother of his children, he still provided for Penina in the same way in which he provided for Hannah. He still provided for Penina in the same way in which he provided for Hannah. Something very important for us to point out, because as men especially you hear today who will one day be the the, the leaders of your household, it's important to not show favoritism uh, in your family. It's important especially to not show favoritism among your children. It's important not to do that. And this great godly man truly, although a nobody, Elkanah, shows no favoritism between Hannah and Penina. As I said, a, a better translation of verse 5 is that, but to Hannah he gave one portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Elkanah understands something, though. He loves her in spite of the fact that she is barren. In this culture, it would be very easy for Elkanah to become very bitter and resentful toward his wife Hannah because she couldn't give him any kids. Okay, the kids in this day were like the pride and joy and literally the heritage of the family. Children and and passing on uh, the family line and the birthright was very important. And in this culture, it would not be uncommon for the husband to to harbor real bitter resentment toward his first wife. But Elkanah doesn't. Why? Because he realizes something very important. Though he loved her because the Lord had closed her womb. He understands that this is not her fault, that this is something that God has done. And even though he doesn't understand it, he recognizes that this is of God. That this is something that God has chosen to do in his life and in his wife's life. That the Lord closed her her womb. But we see immediately following in verse 6 a contrast that her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Listen, I submit to you today that it's because of a misunderstanding of important doctrine, of important 
uh, an important understanding of who God is. Elkanah realized that what was happening, this, this really truly tragic thing in this culture that was happening, it was a result of what God was doing in their life. Penina, though, mocks and rebukes and constantly ridicules Hannah to irritate her out of a, out of a, a misunderstanding of what God is doing. Listen, it's really easy for us when we don't truly have a good handle on God's Word, when we don't truly have a good handle on Scripture and on doctrine, to really twist our view of God and to really lash out on people in inappropriate ways. I, uh, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail. It has little, I think, well, no, it doesn't have little to do with leadership, but it's a rabbit trail nonetheless, but indulge me. Uh, over the last week or so, I've been engaging in a, in a debate online over Facebook uh, with an old teacher of mine uh, who holds to the belief uh, that hell is not eternal. Uh, hell is not eternal. God simply um, judges uh, and destroys wicked people, uh, that there's no eternal hell. And his reasoning for believing that is that God is all-loving, And if God is all-loving, and he's created a universe of love, he could never sentence someone to eternal torture, because that contradicts love. The problem is, is this comes from a, a, a twisted doctrine. This comes from a misunderstanding of Scripture, and from a misunderstanding of who God is. It's true that God is love. Uh, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, we sing it all the time. Uh, anyone that loveth is born of God, knoweth God, but he that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. First John 4, 8, God is love. It's very clear that God is love. Yeah, it's true. But in building his entire theology around this verse, he's left out God's righteousness, God's justice, God's holiness, God's wrath. He's left out all of these aspects of who God is. And he's left out all of these aspects of what God has revealed through his word. Listen, when you have a misunderstanding of scripture, okay, when you have a misunderstanding of doctrine, it can really leave you in a bad place. And specifically with this teacher, it's left him in a place where when I politely uh, bowed out of the argument, and made clear that the, the argument had dwindled into futility. In other words, neither of us were going to, to, to convince the other. Uh, we were both very firm in our camps. Um, he made three or four more comments afterward that were very disparaging toward me. They were very cutting toward me. Uh, you know, since I have such a, a high um, understanding and, and scholarship, um, uh, I'm certain that people, when they read our discussion back and forth will never build their doctrine off of the verse that he and I were, were debating over. And um, he was really cutting toward me. He was really cutting toward me. And I didn't understand where it could from, and I, I really wanted to just twist the knife and say, whatever helps you sleep at night, man. Um, You know, if that's what you really need to just end this, then fine. But I didn't. I just remained silent, and I let him post what he wanted to post to to end the discussion. 
and I let him have the last word. But understand, when you have a twisted view of who God is, when you have a twisted view of doctrine, it can cause you to lash out at people about inappropriate things in inappropriate ways. That's what's happening here uh, with Elkanah and Penina. Elkanah realizes he understands that God is in control truly of everything. Okay? He sits on the throne of the universe. He holds everything in the span of his hand. He's in control. And Elkanah realizes that, God, I don't understand this, why you've stricken my wife, why you've caused her to be barren, uh, but you're good. You give, you take away. Elkanah understands that, but Penina doesn't. Penina has a twisted view of God closing her womb, and as a result, mocks her. As a result, ridicules her for something that is not her fault. For something that's not her fault. Oftentimes, Christians can be truly cruel uh, when something bad happens, and they can attribute some tragic event uh, that comes down from the hand of God as righteous punishment. They sound a lot like Job's friends, right? Um, God caused Katrina to kill all the gays. Things like that. Christians can say some truly cruel, some very wrong, some very unscriptural things. And it's because they don't have a right understanding of who God is. They don't have a right understanding of doctrine. So it's important for us to have a right understanding of who God is. Why? If for no other reason, not only that we may love the true God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but so that we can truly love one another as we love ourselves. It's important, very important, that we have a good handle on theology, a good handle on doctrine, a good handle on who God is and on how he works. We'll continue reading now. Verse 7 So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Here we have something, again, very important revealed to us about this story. An important insight. This man, Elkanah, truly, genuinely loves his wife and truly wants to help her. And like any man, does not have the right words to say. Uh, It just doesn't work that way, okay? Aren't I more to you than ten sons? Um, I I have a a close friend of mine, a co-worker. Um, His name is Jason. And he and his wife, Mary, uh, have just recently had their, their firstborn son, Zechariah, And that is all Mary has wanted uh, for years. Um, Ever since I've known her, all she's wanted to be is a mommy. And for years, um, Jason and Mary weren't able to do that. And I cannot imagine for the life of me uh, ever Jason saying to Mary, Why are you so sad, Mary? Aren't I worth ten sons to you? I love Mary to death, but she would have went on the war path, and I don't think Jason would have come into work the next day. Elkanah, though, truly loves his wife and has right intentions and truly wants to comfort uh, his wife, Hannah, who is absolutely, completely, 100% devastated. 
She is depressed. Today, if she were alive, she might go to a psychiatrist and he might prescribe her pills uh, for being bipolar, chronically depressed, something like that. She was truly depressed to the point that she couldn't even eat. Have you ever been so sad, so depressed, so bummed out that you completely lost your appetite? I I totally know what that's like. I remember one time I was really actually starving before this happened. I was very hungry and... uh, and someone called me with, with some really terrible news. It was after a Tuesday night Bible study. Uh, and I was, I, after this study, I don't eat dinner. And so afterwards, I'm starving. And I have to go to some fast food joint and take in a ton of disgusting calories. And so this particular night, I uh, jumped in my car and drove over to uh, McDonald's. And uh, just before pulling into uh, the line there at McDonald's, I got a call uh, from a friend of mine uh, in North Carolina. And he had told me that, uh, that a young man that I know, his name was Jordan, um, he had drowned uh, in a lake there in North Carolina, uh, the lake that I had baptized him in. And um, this news was just, it just grieved me. It hit me. And um, I wanted more than anything to just drive to LAX, get on a plane and fly to North Carolina. And uh, as hungry as I was, I couldn't bring myself to eat. I believe that that was a small, small portion of what Hannah was going through. Year after year after year, she comes up to worship God at Shiloh. And I imagine Penina ridiculing her with things like, what do you have to worship God for? What do you have to be thankful for? It's not like he's given you the one thing you've ever asked of him for. Well, why do you keep worshiping God? You, you must not be that good of a, of a Jew, of an Israelite, because, I mean, you, you still don't have any kids. You're barren. God promised in Deuteronomy that he would bless us and that not one of us would be barren, but you are. You must be doing something wrong. What do you have to be thankful to God for? I imagine she ridiculed her in that way year after year after year. And so Hannah is grieved to the point that she can't even eat. She's utterly depressed. And now her well-intentioned but male husband tries to comfort her as best he can and, and fails miserably. Babe, aren't I ten, hus- ten sons to you? She looks at him, I'm sure. You don't get it. And so what does she do? Well, we see in verse 9 that after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Shiloh, pardon me, Hannah rose. We'll pause right there. So what happens? They're sitting at the table. They're having dinner, and Hannah won't even eat. She kind of pushes the food away. She looks at Penina. Penina's grinning at her wryly. She looks down at her two sons and, and wishes, or at her sons and wishes desperately that, that she could have a, a son of her own. She wants so bad to be a mom. Hannah, I'm sure, makes some uh, underhanded, passive-aggressive comment at Hannah. She can't even eat. So Elkanah, trying as best he can, goes to try and comfort her, and Hannah just looks at him, and she just gets up from the table and walks away. She just gets up and walks away. Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. 
And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of of his life and no razor shall touch his head. We'll pause right there. Hannah responds in a truly incredible way. Hannah responds in a truly incredible way. And in a lot of ways, this chapter is put in Scripture for us to take a look at both the life of Elkanah, truly a godly husband who's resolved, and even though he's a nobody, and Hannah, and how she responds uh, to, in a sense, the card she's been dealt. We've seen how Elkanah has responded to Hannah's situation. He's compassionate and he tries to comfort her. We've seen how Penina responds to Hannah's situation. She ridicules her and rebukes her and possibly even blames her for her situation. But now for the first time, we see Hannah's action about her own situation. We haven't seen Hannah act at all so far. But for the first time, we see Hannah act. And how does she respond to her circumstances She prays. She prays. Listen, Christian, if you're here today and you're taking notes, okay, when someone is going through a rough time, when someone is not doing well, whether it's a friend, whether it's a loved one, or whether it's someone who is uh, in subordination to you, okay, someone who you are in leadership over, and they are not doing well, they're having a hard time. Sometimes comforting them is the worst thing you could do. Sometimes comforting them is the worst thing you could do. I, I think of, of my pastor, uh, Pastor Greg Laurie, um, who told the story of after his son Christopher, uh, his, his oldest son was tragically killed in a car accident, that people would come up to him and try to comfort him with things like, I know what you're going through. My grandmother died uh, not too long ago. I know what you're going through. My, uh, my friend died, um, someone I knew from school. I know what you're going through. Even so awful as to someone that I, I can't even imagine saying this or, or hearing this, uh, but someone came up to him and said, I know what you're going through. My dog died last week. Seeking to somehow connect with him and comfort him in some way. Listen, sometimes comforting them is the worst thing you could do. We, of course, know that ridiculing them is the worst thing that you could do. But again, as I've already stated, it's very possible that Penina is even blaming her for what she's going through. Much like Job's friends did, blaming him for what God was allowing to happen in his life. Listen, blaming someone for what's going on in their life is not helpful either. Big surprise there. But sometimes neither is trying to comfort them. But the best way to respond to someone's poor circumstances and the best way for you to respond to your own circumstances is to go to God in prayer. To go to God in prayer. We've already been shown multiple times so far in the chapter that it was God who closed her womb. Elkanah realizes this. Penina realizes this, and Hannah realizes this, but Hannah is the first person to respond rightly in going back to God. Listen, if God is the one who closed her womb, then God is the only one who can open it. 
If God is the one who closed her womb, even if he chooses not to open it, he is truly the only one who can reveal to her the purpose of that and comfort her through it. Hannah prays. Hannah prays. She doesn't just pray, though. I I imagine that if I were in Hannah's situation, I would want to give God a little piece of my mind. I know because I've been in some some unfortunate circumstances, although nothing, I, I don't think, compared to the agony that Hannah was going to. And, and I, that's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to give God a piece of my mind, and I, I let it rip. God, this is what I think, all right? Whether you like it or not. But Hannah doesn't pray like that. Let's look at how Hannah prays. First of all, we see there in verse 11, she recognizes who God is. She prays to him, O Lord of hosts. O Lord of hosts, she recognizes who God is. She recognizes that he is, ow, I just hit my mouth on this microphone. Whew, that kind of hurt. She recognizes who God is, and she recognizes that he is, in fact, sitting on the throne of the universe, that he is in control, that he alone is the one who can help her where she's at. She recognizes who God is. And it's so important for us when we pray to God to remember and to recognize who He is. Who is God? Well, first of all, He's your dad. He's your father who's adopted you. He's your dad. But second of all, it's important for us to remember that He is, as Hannah prayed, the Lord of hosts, the God of everything, so to speak. The king of the universe. Now let me ask you, England, we don't have a king or a queen, and England only has a queen, but would you storm into uh, Buckingham Palace and start demanding things of the Queen of England? No, of course not. Why? Because I don't know if they behead any people anymore, but you might get beheaded if you were to do something like that, okay? That's not something that you do. That's not, some, that's not a way that you treat someone uh, of royalty, someone in a position in which the Queen of England is in. In the same way, how much more should we not treat the king of the universe that way? Listen, if we're to pray, we must remember and recognize who God is. Secondly, Hannah prays, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant. Not only does she remember and recognize who God is, but she realizes who she is. She realizes who she is in light of who God is. Listen, family. Let's never start taking liberties with God. He's given us so much. He's given us grace upon grace and mercy over that. But let's not take liberties with God and start flying into the throne room demanding things. Yes, we absolutely can walk boldly into the throne room of grace, but let's never take that for granted. Let's never take that for granted, and let's, not nev- let's never treat that cheaply. We have to remember who we are in light of who he is. 
Not only does Hannah realize and remember who God is, but she recognizes who she is in light of God. But then she gets to her request. So first she recognizes and she realizes and now she gets to the request. Her request is that he would indeed look on the affliction of, her, of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but to give your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life and no razor shall touch his head. Listen, she has this request. Give me a son, the deepest desire of her heart. Listen, we absolutely need to recognize in prayer who God is and realize who we are in light of who he is, but understand that he is a good father. He's a good dad. He knows how to give good gifts to his kids, and it's not wrong for you to come to God with your requests. It's not wrong for you to come to God with what you want, with what you feel like you need. It's not wrong to come to him with those things. It's not wrong to ask things of God. And that's exactly what Hannah does. She comes humbly, but boldly to God, asking for a son, recognizing that he is the only one who can give it to her. And then she makes a vow. She makes a vow that if you do this, God, if you give me this son, I will give him back to you. And he for his entire life shall serve you. She makes this point that no razor shall touch his head alluding to the fact that her son would be a Nazarite. A Nazarite. He would take a Nazarite vow. We took a look at what a Nazarite vow was. You remember when we looked at Samson, he had also taken a Nazarite vow. There were three parts to a Nazarite vow. The first was that they couldn't drink of the vine. So Welch's grape juice, not going to happen. More importantly, and more to the point, wine never to touch their lips. Why? Because they were to be a people, uh, as they took this vow to God, saying, I'm set apart from you, and I'm not going to allow uh, alcohol okay, to intoxicate me and to control me, but I'm going to be controlled only by you. And so because of that, they couldn't touch or eat the fruit of the vine. Secondly, they couldn't go near a dead body. They couldn't go near a dead body. Uh, if their brother um, died, they couldn't bury them. Okay? Uh, they couldn't touch or be near a carcass. Why? Because that would make them unclean. And so the second part of a Nazarite vow would say that I, I'm going to be completely clean. I'm going to com- be completely holy and pure for you, God. The third part of the vow, which Hannah is alluding to here, is that they wouldn't cut their hair. They wouldn't cut their hair. And so they'd have like long hippie hair. And uh, the purpose of that was to identify with God. You'd be able to spot someone who'd taken a Nazarite vow from a mile away. Why? Because they had hair past their butt. Okay? And so they wouldn't shave their head. And so that's what Hannah is saying, is I'm going to make my son a Nazarite for the rest of his life. Understand, a Nazarite vow normally was only for a short period of time. But her son like Samson, would, would take this vow for the rest of his life. And, and that would signify, that would mean that he would be dedicated to God for his entire life. Hannah recognizes who God is. She realizes who she is in light of who God is. She presents her request, and then she makes a vow. That God, if you give this to me, I will give it back to you. 
Reminds me of the song that we sing so often. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. God, what you give me, I'm going to give back to you. You bless me, I'm going to bless you back. Well, Eli, the priest, as you remember, is sitting on a stool not too far away, kind of watching this whole thing happen. And verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. We'll pause right there just real briefly. I just want to point out that in the next couple chapters, uh, we'll realize that Eli has quite a bit of experience with drunken people around the temple, namely his two worthless sons, Hophni and Phinehas. We'll keep reading, though. So he mistakes her to be a drunk. Verse 14, And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have neither drunk wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. Again, I'd like to point out uh, that we'll see in a couple chapters, Eli's sons are called worthless men. Um, It's just an important thing to remember. She says, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. We'll pause real quick. Hannah again points out that she's anxious, she's vexed, she is distraught, she's depressed. Every possible negative emotion you could think of, she's feeling right now. And so as she's praying, she's just crying out to God, and her her lips are moving, she's mouthing the words, but she's not speaking them, she's praying in her heart. Sort of like when you're, you're laughing so hard. Uh, have you ever laughed so hard that you don't actually know sound actually comes out? Those are the funniest laughs to watch, by the way. Uh, but that's sort of what Eli's observing with Hannah, is that, okay, her lips are moving, but nothing's coming out. And she's saying, it's out of my great, deep distraught and distress. This deep depression that I have, I'm so anxious, I'm so worried, I'm so overcome and overwhelmed with grief that as I'm praying, I'm just praying in my heart. Eli says to her, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you all that you've asked for. In the Hebrew, it sort of says um, what, you've, what you've asked for be given to you. What you've asked for be given to you. So what, what's Hannah's response? After she prays, after she gives this to God, does she go back, hang her head, depressed and distraught, yet again anxious and, and overcome with grief and emotion? Well, we see in verse 18, Samuel says, or I'm sorry, um, Hannah says to Samuel, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. I want to point out something very important to you here today. Listen, when you pray, when you give something to God, leave it with Him. When you give something to God, leave it with Him. So often we as Christians, we we run to God and we try and give Him something, but we just won't let go. There was a poem that hung uh, in in the bathroom at my mom's house for many years, and I I should have looked it up uh, so I could read it to you, but I didn't. And I can't quote it verbatim. 
But the poem essentially said uh, that there is, I, I went to God uh, trying to give him uh, my broken dreams. And I laid him at his feet and he told me, don't worry, I'll fix them for you. I'll take care of it. And I said, okay, God. And I checked back with him a little while later and there were still my broken dreams sitting on the floor at his feet. And I thought to myself, why hasn't God done anything about it yet? And I, I went my way and I, I continued to try and, and, and chase after my dreams. And time and time and time again, I kept going back to God's throne and seeing my dreams still broken on the floor and wondering, God, why haven't you, you fixed my dreams? Why haven't you fixed my broken dreams? And God looks at me and he says, my child, you never let go. You never let go. Listen, so often we as Christians, we do that. We go to God with things, but we don't actually give them to Him. We pray as a formality, right? Okay, I I need to pray so that I feel better. Okay, dear God, please fix this in your precious Son's name. Amen. And we still feel depressed, and we're still anxious, and we're still unnerved. But Thessalonians tells us, or pardon me, not Thessalonians, Philippians, uh, tells us that we should be anxious for nothing, but in everything, through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we should present our request to God. Why? So that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says to the Philippians, not present your requests to God so that they will be answered, Not present your request to God so that you'll get what you want, but present your request to God so that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Listen, Hannah prayed this genuine prayer, and she went away happy. She went in distressed, distraught, discomforted, depressed, and she went away joyful, She went her way and ate and wasn't sad anymore. She wasn't sad anymore. Why? Because she trusted God. She laid this at his feet and she left it for him to deal with, to take care of. Listen, as Christians, that's what we must do. We must follow the example of Hannah in our prayer. Listen, when you are dealt discouraging circumstances. The only, the only appropriate response is to run to God with them, but not just to run to Him with them and to pray for them, but to leave them at His feet, to let go. It's so crucial. I was talking to, to a young man that I disciple today, and I was talking to him a lot about this, that this was something he, he needed to let go of. He was so bitter in his heart and so anxious and so unnerved about something that was going on in his life, a circumstance. And I, I told him, you know, buddy, you need to let go of this. And he said, okay, you're right. And so after I do this and after this happens and after thus and such and after this is resolved, I'll let go of it. And I said, no, you have to let go now. You have to let go now because God's not going to do any of those things until you let go. Listen, Christian, when you're dealt discouraging circumstances, the only appropriate response is to run to God and to leave them at his feet to let go. 
This is not only true of us in our own lives as individuals when we're faced with discouraging circumstances, but you, as a place of, uh, of being in Christian leadership in some, by some definition, in prayerfully discipling someone. You should, every single one of you, if you're a Christian in here today, you need to be discipling somebody. Okay? Jesus' last words to us were, go make disciples of all nations, okay? So that means every single one of you make disciples, right? Every single one of you should have at least that position of Christian leadership that you are discipling someone. When that person has discouraging circumstances, it's not helpful to blame them for them. It's not helpful even necessarily to try and comfort them for them. But the only response for you is to run to God with those requests and to leave them at his feet. That's something I struggle with especially. Very, 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 very much. The guys that I disciple that are close in my life, that are very dear to me, when they're struggling with something, when they're going through a tough time, it breaks my heart. And I can't let go of it. And I stress about it all day long. And I think about it, and I dwell on it, and I think about it some more, and I dwell on it after that. And I just, oh, it just eats away inside of me, and I just want to do something to fix it. When the only thing that I need to do is give it to God and to let go. Whether it's someone that you disciple, whether it's someone uh, in a ministry that you serve in, whether it's you men when you're one day husbands, uh, you know, your wife, or if you are a husband for your wife, for your family. You women, when you're for your, for your children, no matter what it is, whatever place of, of whatever leadership you might have in someone's life, listen, the only thing that you can do for them and the greatest thing that you can do for them is to run to God with it and to leave it at their feet, at his feet, to let go. That's exactly what Hannah does. She goes her way and she eats and her face was no longer sad. Verse 19, then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. We'll pause right there. I just wanted, I I just love uh, visualizing this. I wonder what Hannah's worship looked like that morning. I wonder what Hannah's worship looked like that morning. She'd finally given this to God. She'd finally let go of this. She'd given it to him and was trusting him with it. I imagine that her worship that day compared to her worship from the day before was night and day. I don't know about you, but when I'm going through tough circumstances, it's sometimes hard for me to worship God. And I sit there and I look around and I see everyone singing and I'll sometimes even sing, but my heart's not in it. I'm struggling with myself and I'm praying, God, I just want to worship you. I want to mean it. I want it to be from my heart. It's hard, right? It's hard for us to worship God sometimes when we're holding on to things. When we're clutching onto our problems or, or even other people's problems. It's hard for us to worship God. But listen, when we finally let go, when we finally let go and let God, <laughs> listen, it's so freeing. It enables you to be able to worship like you never have before. Praising God for what he's going to do, for what he's doing and trusting in him, knowing that he's good. And even when we don't understand it, he's still good. I would have loved to have seen Hannah's worship that morning. But they worship that morning and then they pack up and they head back home 
to Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. The Lord remembered her. This is one of my favorite statements in all of Scripture. And we see it a few times. We see it in the case of Noah, right? We see it in Noah. You know, we read about this epic flood that happens and the entire world is destroyed there in the book of Genesis. And it's just tragedy and it's just pain and it's just awfulness. Uh, But there in chapter 8, opens up in verse 1, but the Lord remembered Noah. But the Lord remembered Noah. This has to be one of the most encouraging phrases in the entire Bible to me that I remind myself over time and time and time again. And I put my name in there, but the Lord remembered Tyler. It's not like I really believe God's ever forgotten me, okay? God's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere. He's all-present, okay? God has not forgotten me. And it's not like Hannah believed that God had forgotten her either. In fact, in the next chapter, in chapter 2, we'll see that Hannah calls God the knowing God, the God who knows. He knows what's going on. He, he, he's not forgotten. But when we read this phrase, the Lord remembered Noah or Abraham or Sarah or, in this case, Hannah. But the Lord remembered Hannah. What that means is that God is about to do something. He's about to move and act in favor of his kids. He's about to move and act in favor of his kids. Listen, wherever you're at, wherever you're at, whatever storm you're in, okay, the Lord remembers. He knows where you're at. He knows what's going on. He hasn't forgotten. But the Lord remembered Hannah. And in due time, verse 20, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, and she, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. She calls him Samuel because Samuel sounds like the Hebrew word for asked. Asked. She asked and God gave. Verse 21, the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he might appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. In other words, Hannah is saying, I'm not even going to go to Shiloh until I'm ready to fulfill my vow to God. Oh, that all of us had the same mentality when it came to to vows made to God. I've made more vows to God than I can count. And I remember almost none of them. Hannah, though, says, I'm not even going to go back to church until I'm ready to fulfill the vow that I made to God. Elkanah, her husband, a truly godly man, says to her in verse 23, Do what seems best to you. Wait here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. May the Lord establish his word. Okay, I don't know if you realized it yet, but God has not said anything, okay, in this whole book so far. In this entire book, God has not spoken anything. There's no quote-unquote word that's been spoken. And so what is Elkanah talking about here? God hasn't spoken a word. Hannah's the one who made a vow. But it's not like he said, do whatever seems best to you, only let you fulfill your word. 
but rather he says only let God fulfill his word. What does this mean? Elkanah is pointing out something so profound that ultimately it's God who has a plan and a purpose for this boy. In a sense, he's using a word as a picture of God's plans and purposes for our lives. Only let God fulfill his word. Only let God fulfill his plan and purpose for little Samuel. He reminds his wife, do what seems best to you. Do whatever it is that you need to do, but only make sure that the Lord fulfills his word. Make sure that God uh, has his way with this boy. Such a godly husband, such a godly man. And even though he was a nobody in the scheme of Israel, right? Even though he was a nobody, I love seeing nobodies who are truly epic pictures of, of male leadership in a family. I love that. Hannah says, babe, I'm not going to church today. I'm not going to church today because I'm not going to go there until I'm ready to fulfill my vow. And her husband looks at her and he says, you do whatever seems best to you, but you make sure that God has his way. You do whatever seems best to you, but you make sure that God still fulfills his plan and purpose. You make sure you don't get in the way of what God's doing. I love that. Such a godly man, such a godly husband. All of us men would take, would do well to take note of the example of Elkanah. <clears throat> verse, uh, continuing on verse 23. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the child to Eli. And, he, and she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted to my petition granted me my petition I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped there. There's a few things in these last few verses that I want to point out uh, before we wrap this up and before we bring this study to a close and sort of land the bird, so to speak. You remember what Eli said to Hannah, right? She said, what you've asked for may be given to you. May be given to you what you've asked for. What does she name her son? Samuel? Asked, right? It's so cool, (laughs) clever, interesting of God that in this dialogue that Hannah has uh, with, with Eli, She says, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. So I want you to circle that word praying in your Bible. Praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, circle that again, and the Lord granted me my petition, circle that word, that I made to him, circle that word. Therefore, I have lent, circle that word, him to the Lord, as long as he lives, he is lent, circle that word, to the Lord. Every single one of these words, including Samuel's namesake, are all the same word that Eli speaks to Hannah. 
what you've asked may it be given to you. All of these words are the Hebrew asked. All crowned by the fact that her boy's name sounds like and is derived from the word asked. Listen, this this chapter of this book, we've seen two key people here in this chapter who are ultimately very insignificant. We'll never see them again. We'll never see Elkanah show up anywhere in Scripture. And we'll never see Hannah show up really anywhere else in Scripture. Two somewhat insignificant people. Together, collectively, they have one chapter. We've taken a look at Elkanah, what it means to be, you know, a little bit of of, of what it means to be a godly man uh, as it pertains to, to male leadership in a family setting. But we've taken a great look at Hannah and her response to circumstances. Bad responses were dealt to her and she responded in prayer. We took a look at, as leaders, how we need to respond to other people's tough circumstances in our lives. We shouldn't respond like, like Penina, blaming it on them. We should not respond like Elkanah, trying just to comfort them for the sake of comforting them, oftentimes using the, the worst words. But rather, we should respond like ha- Hannah to tough circumstances, praying and giving those things to God and leaving them at his feet. We took a look at Hannah and, and how we should respond Uh, to these things. But 1 Samuel chapter 1 is not about Elkanah. 1 Samuel chapter 1 is not about Hannah. And 1 Samuel chapter 1 is not even about Samuel. But I believe truly that 1 Samuel chapter 1 is about God. 1 Samuel chapter 1 is about God. Listen, at this point in, in, in the life of the children of Israel, there's now no more judges. The judges are gone. They rose up in, in temporal times, in, in specific locations, to rule over the children of Israel for a short period of time. They're all gone. The judges are gone. And Israel is truly at a loss for who their leader is. They don't know who to look to for leadership. They could look to Eli, the chief priest, but he seems to be a little inept. He seems to be, frankly, a bit of a fool. He can't tell the difference between a godly woman and a drunk woman. Okay? In addition, he, he has these two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who we're going to see in the next few chapters. Uh, spoiler alert, Okay? in the next few chapters, are worthless men. They're drunkards, and they use their position of authority to have sex with women in the temple or in the tabernacle. Truly worthless, godless men. No, the children of Israel couldn't look to the priesthood. They had no more judges. They were at a loss for who should, they should be looking to for leadership. The question before it's even asked is answered in Samuel. God answers the question before it's even asked. Who should we look to? Who should we run to? Who should we cling to? Who should we identify with? Who should we follow after? 
God answers the unasked question with Samuel. This is about God. That listen, in your life, in your life, you have needs. You have things that you truly need. Not just wants, not just desires, but things that you truly need. But listen, God's known that need before you even asked it. God knew your need before you even asked it. 1 Samuel chapter 1 is all about the fact that God knows what's going on in your life. He knows what you need, and He is going to provide what you need, exactly what you need. He's going to provide exactly what it is that you ask for. Wherever you're at here today, Christian, no matter what circumstances you're dealing with, no matter what tough times you're up against, no matter what is, seems to be going wrong in your life, listen, run to God. Run to God. Only ask it of Him. And it will be given to you. Ask it, it will be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Listen, Christian, no matter where you're at, no matter what's going on, ask, and God will provide. This isn't a genie, okay? It's not just, I want a Lamborghini, and there it is, okay? It's not the nationwide commercial, or no, State Farm commercial. Uh, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there with a hot tub. <laughs> Doesn't work that way, okay? God's not a magic genie, okay? He's not a State Farm real estate agent. But what you need, God's going to give it to you. Jesus questions uh, the people of his day, and he says this, which of you, okay, which one of you, if your son came and asked for a fish, would give him a scorpion? None of you. Or or which of you, if your child asked for a piece of bread, uh, would you give him a stone? None of you. You wouldn't do that. That's awful. That's terrible. No one would do that to their kids. If you who are wicked know how to good give, give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts to those who ask? Listen, God knows what you need. He also knows what you don't need. All you need to do is ask, and he will give you everything that you need. He knew your need before you even asked. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word uh, that we just got to come here and study. This is just so incredible. God, I'm so blessed by this opportunity to, to truly dig into your word and see these examples of, of how we should live, that we should be a people that, that run and cling to you and give what we need to you and leave it there, that we would trust you because you love us and you know our need before we even ask it. Thank you for showing us that in your word. I pray that this wouldn't just sit idly in our minds, but that we would chew on this and meditate on it, that we would truly live our week out, recognizing and realizing that you are good, and that when we have needs, when we have desires, when we're faced with tough circumstances, we need only to run to you. We need only to pray. God, I pray that when we do, that we wouldn't pray as a formality, as something that just needs to get done, 
but that we would truly pray, desiring to give this to your feet, not so that you'll answer our prayers or give us what we want, but that so that your peace that surpasses all understanding would guard our hearts and our minds in you. God, I pray that you would cause us to remember this, that we'd store this word up in our heart, that we wouldn't sin against you by disbelieving that you're good, by forgetting that you remember us, by trying to control our life and manipulate our circumstances rather than giving them and trusting them to you. It's in your precious son's name we pray all this. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. May God cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift each and every one of you. May he lift your countenance and give you peace.